Hey, everybody. Welcome to Scuttlebutt. I'm Nancy, and I'm here with Vic. Hey. And Sarah Bach. Hi. Yay. Got Bach. you, finally. Sarah is the, leather, the lead staff writer for Leatherneck Magazine. She has been writing monthly features for the magazine since 2014. And unfortunately, sadly, we're bringing Sarah on the show today because... She just wrapped up her last issue for Leatherneck. She is moving on to some other things. Oh, it's so sad. I know. So, Sarah, really. we are hoping that you will share with our listeners about some of your most memorable experiences writing for Leatherneck. Welcome. I'd love that. Thank you. There's so many of them. So, you know, how long do you have? <laughs> yeah, as, honestly, as long as you want to give us. <laughs> We could turn this into like a uh, multi-series thing where we just start, you know, releasing little bits every here and there. Yeah, I was thinking we could do a whole this is your life thing. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Or like a uh, last day, first day, like last yeah. day of the job, first day uh, part of the podcast. Yeah, that's right. Did you do one of those little chalkboard pictures on your first day with Leatherneck? Like I wish I had. Time <laughs> 2020. <laughs> So speaking of that, when was your first day with Leatherneck? So working for Leatherneck as staff writer was actually my first job out of college. So in 2008, I joined the staff of Leatherneck and I was with uh, the magazine for about a year and then returned in 2014 full time. And I've been in the position ever since. And and in that time, OK, I'm just going to jump right in. So. Tell tell us about some of your favorite topics, some of the favorite articles that you wrote during that time. Sure. Oh, there's a lot. Um, some of them have been, you know, notable individuals that I had the pleasure and honor of sitting down with. Um, four consecutive sergeants major of the Marine Corps, who all really gave really good insights into, you know, the current state of the Marine Corps. And I really enjoyed every one of those. Um, interviewed former NASA administrator and retired Marine General Charlie Bolden. Um, and his story really was one of overcoming adversity, um, growing up in the segregated South with dreams of attending the Naval Academy, um, only to be told that, you know, none of his members of Congress were, were willing to give him a recommendation uh, due to his race. And but he he persevered and, you know, eventually was named administrator of NASA by President Obama. So really a remarkable individual. And Nancy, you were there with me. I mean, we, we scheduled this interview at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, the Udvar Hazy facility. Um, and we sat in the hangar where the space shuttle Discovery now rests, uh, once piloted by by General Bolden himself. And to, I mean, really just to see him in his element and just watch his eyes light up when he talked about space flight. And, you know, we walked around the shuttle, which is just, you know, massive and jaw dropping. And, and to have him just, you know, recount his experiences in that setting was, you know, one of the top experiences of my life, I think. <laughs> To agree with you on that and and having him walk us around that little area 
that little, the sort of space hanger and point out various things that were on display, sort of hanging from the ceiling and, and explain to us what those were and what his, his role in, in using those things had been. It was just, it was like, you, you, you just can't, where else could you ever experience that? Right, right. I mean, best air and space museum tour guide ever, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and like you said, his story is so incredibly motivating. I was on a I was on a high after that interview. Absolutely, for a while. So yeah, that's insane. Like, is it just I was just thinking about that. Like, I I feel like when uh, like for example, if I take my kids like to the Marine Corps Museum, like they they're gonna get a certain level of uh i don't know extra info or whatever um and so i think i i almost feel like i'm I'm a little bit responsible for making sure that they're getting the most out of all of the exhibits and blah but i mean i never once have i gone there and been like oh that was my aav or that was my (laughs) rifle (laughs) you you got the tour guide for like hey i know a little bit about this thing because i flew this thing you know or like this is my piece of gear that's so amazing exactly it was I don't know, Sarah, tell me if you agree, but I think one of the best parts about it is in order to conduct this interview, the museum team brought us in about an hour and a half before the museum opened. And so we were there in the op- uh, empty Udvarhazi Center with no one but their public affairs coordinator and Major General Bolden. It was amazing. It was amazing. It really was. So I was really proud of that piece, which I actually rewrote entirely after my first write writing round. Um, <laughs> and I was really happy, you know, really frustrating, you know, when you when you get to know somebody like him, um, it's a lot of pressure to, you know, share their story the right way. And Sometimes, you know, a little bit of writer's block is is involved in that, um, but really just such an inspirational person, um, an incredible story of overcoming the odds, really. Um, and he, he was incredible. Another, um, another one I really enjoyed, and Nancy also accompanied me on this one. Um, there's a reoccurring theme here. Yeah. <laughs> Nancy and I are a team, so <laughs> it'd be really weird to not be working together for the first time in a very long time. It will be. Anyhow, we had the incredible opportunity of sitting down with former U.S. Senator John Warner, who was a a senator for the state of Virginia for 30 years. Growing up in Virginia, my entire childhood, uh, he was our senator. So I knew of him always. And um, just the opportunity to sit down with him for what he said was going to be the last time he ever told his story. He passed away about a year later. Um, So, and for him, his story is all about his service in the Navy during World War II and then in the Marine Corps as a young officer during the Korean War. Um, He has many accolades, you know, chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, among so many other accomplishments, but to him, his identity really rested on that of a young sailor um, and a young Marine and and how formative those life experiences were for him um, and how, you know, in all his years as a legislator, always in the back of his mind was 
those experiences. And so he really had the best interests of our service members and veterans at heart always. Um, and what an incredible man. I mean, he tried making us coffee with a fancy espresso <laughs> machine at his law firm. And that was, <laughs> that was just the best. I mean, just every minute with him was so special and, you know, his, his health was failing and, but he still was showing up to the office and, you know, sitting down and spending time with us and it, it meant the world to us. So after after that visit, there were many hours on the phone spent with Senator Warner um, talking about, you know, where we were going to go with the article. He really wanted to be really involved in it. And so, you know, we sent back and forth, sent drafts and edits, and, and it was really a collaborative effort, which is not what I was anticipating going in. And um, slightly frustrating at times, but it ended up being, you know, we kind of formed an unlikely friendship of sorts, so much so that even after the article was finished and turned in and there was no going back, he would still call me to chat. So really just a cool experience. Um, and then of course, you know, the news of his passing in the following year, um, you know, really hit hard, um, but so grateful and I think it emphasized the importance of you know writing down these stories before it's too late and so the fact that he was willing to to agree to that and and to sit down and he hadn't ever really told the exhaustive story of his service you know if you read of any bio of of John Warner you know, there might be a sentence or two about his service, but the rest of it was his accolades from later on in life. So um, to kind of let him tell his story, which was really heavy on, he just always thought of himself as a sailor and a Marine for the rest of his life and just an incredible person. Um, so, you know, again, another notable, well-known individual who served in the Marine Corps, um, and these stories are fantastic, but, I think that most important to me were the stories that really hadn't been told yet. And I know this is something you guys on Scuttlebutt really focus on as well, you know, telling those stories that aren't widely known, those names that people don't recognize. Um, so another one would be um, Captain Randy Norfleet, who was serving on recruiting duty in Oklahoma and was inside the Murrah building when it was bombed, um, the Oklahoma City bombing, you know, we all know of it. Um, he, you know, several Marines were lost that day. He survived, but with significant injuries um, that kind of changed the trajectory of his life. He was a C-130 pilot in the Marine Corps um, and he had planned to be a pilot for life. And he had glass in his eye from the bombing and was no longer able to fly. So his whole story is about, you know, how to handle things when life doesn't go according to plan, because, you know, you can either wallow in pity or you can, you know, turn things around and, and move in a new direction, which is what he chose to do. And so his story is really powerful, I think, for anyone who has or will um, face a life tragedy or change that, you know, they don't expect. And, um, you know, attitude is everything. Um, and that's kind of, was really a neat thing to share. Um, that was a great, really enjoyed that one. I mean, there was not a dry eye in the room. We sat down, um, 
a few of us on the Leatherneck staff, as well as um, his wife and some of his children, um, sat down together. I mean, we we just all were in tears um, as he as he retold his story, and and his wife was able to tell you know her side of the story as well. She was home with their new newborn child um, when this news came on the television and she knew he was there and of course this is before the days of cell phones and things so um just that waiting to you know to find out and so her you know her her side of the story was was important to that overall story as well because um so many you know marine spouses have experienced that um that waiting to to know the outcome of something, you know, is my is my spouse okay? Are they hurt? Are they alive? You know, and so that really resonated, I think, as well. It's an um, important perspective, and I think sometimes it's it's forgotten. Absolutely, um, but it really is an important perspective. Absolutely. Um, so you know, there are those kind of big stories, I would say, but I think that the little micro stories are also you know really important, and I think. Um, Anytime I've been able to sit down with someone who hasn't really told their story very much before is really, it's difficult. Um, sometimes those people are a little harder to interview um, because they're not polished <laughs> when it comes to speaking about this, these experiences in their lives. I interviewed a Navy corpsman from Vietnam who really spent years with unresolved trauma, um, not knowing if the Marines he treated on the battlefield lived or died after they were medevaced out. And I mean, for years, he had names in his in his mind, but he was also afraid to try to track people down because he he didn't know, you know, what the outcome was going to be or if, if people were going to be mad at him for not doing more. Or, you know, I mean, it was really just a really heavy story. Um, but he eventually, after years, reconnected with with some of the Marines in the unit he was attached to and that was really a life-changing experience for him. So he had never really talked about it. And this is really common. A lot of a lot of these men and women come, have come home, not really talked a lot about what they did. And it's not for decades that they begin to really process and think about the trauma that they endured um, and just how, how important it is, um, is to them to be able to talk about it. Um, most recently, my final article for, Le for Leatherneck, which is going to be in our October issue, I interviewed some um, Marines who served in Beirut and lost friends in the bombing of the BLT-18 headquarters uh, in 1983. And um, same thing with many of them as well. They went home and, and didn't really talk about it, and there wasn't a whole lot of awareness in our country about what happened there and um, have really for, for years felt forgotten. Um, and so they, you know, are finally getting a chance to tell their story. Um, and that's what the article was about. Um, a documentary is in production called We Came in Peace, and it's going to release next year for the 40th anniversary of the bombing and really allowing the Marines who were there to tell the stories in their own words. And um, yeah, important stuff. So um, what's that, Nancy? Were you about to say something? No. <laughs> <laughs> To say how how does that how does that feel to know that you're very often the conduit for these people telling their stories for very often the first time? 
Yeah, it's a lot of pressure, uh, to be honest, and it's really a lot of heavy stuff sometimes. You know, I'm not a therapist by any means. Um, there's a lot of PTSD, a lot of survivor's guilt, um, a lot of these things that, you know, I think the best thing you can do is just listen, because um, these aren't experiences that I've personally had. So I can't say I, I've been there, I know what you're going through. Um, but I think a lot of times, just knowing that someone's willing to listen, someone's interested in their story, someone cares and wants to know what they have to say, I think means a lot. And so as much as I can put these interview subjects at ease, um, I really try to maintain a conversational tone in my interviews, especially with ones like these. Um, I think you have to let the person you're talking to kind of take the lead and, um, you know, really just let them say what they want to say. You can't, you can't push people to talk about things they don't want to talk about. Um, and that's not good. So really just letting them say what they want to say and listen. I think is kind of the best, you know, it's, it's, it really is when you're trying to retell somebody's story for them, it is definitely a challenge. Um, but I think well, that I think, like Marines or military people, but I think Marines in particular are pretty bad at talking about these things, not because of like a memory loss or what, like they don't like to talk, but I think in many cases, Marines just always feel like, well, I was just doing my job. Absolutely. And so what Absolutely. like what is it you want me to tell you? Like, oh, I was there and we did all this. And you probably get a lot of that too. Like, we did this, we did that. Um, very rare. Like so I guess what how how is that push pull for you where it's like, all right, can you get your the person you're speaking to to kind of pull themselves out of that thing and then like prop themselves up a little bit so that you can get into that finite detail about what actually happened vice just this sort of like group think event. Right, absolutely. You're totally right about that. And I think there's also this mentality of, you know, like, oh, somebody else had it worse. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, let me downplay what I went through because, you know, oh, it's nothing compared to, you know, somebody else's story. And so that's really common as well. Um, so I think just... I mean, sometimes you do have to push a little bit, but like I said, in in, in situations like these, um, I don't know, you'd be surprised, I think, at what comes out of people after they feel comfortable. Well, um, how do you go about making people feel comfortable? Because you seem to have really, you have a gift for doing that. People are very at ease around you. Is that something you intentionally strive for, or do you think it's just part of who you are? I don't know. I've never really given much thought to that. Um, I just try to be an approachable person, I think. Um, I will say that, and this is somewhat of a point of contention for me, that in a lot of these interview situations, people warm up to me after I happen to mention that my husband is a Marine. And I try not to take offense at that because <laughs> though I would like to be, you know, recognized for my own merits and not my husband's, um, I do think that there is a sense of understanding. There's a bond among, you know, Marines and their family members um, that's really unique and special. And I think there's things that we can open up about with each other that maybe we don't feel comfortable talking about outside of that Marine bubble. So it is. it has been interesting that sometimes people do seem a little bit guarded until that comes up and, you know, then they're maybe more comfortable. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it gives you street cred, huh? 
It does, unfortunately. <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes I had a difficult time with that, but I, I understand it too. I do. Well, I guess I'm comfortable talking about, you know, my experiences, you know, when my husband was deployed um, or something, I'm more comfortable talking about that with another Marine spouse. So I, you know, I understand. I get sure. it. <laughs> yeah, context is huge for sure. And then like you were saying, like creating that safe space, um, you know, you being uh, the spouse of a Marine, I guess, for someone who's uncertain about where your motivations may lie or where the trajectory of the interview goes, that sort of defense goes down if they know like, well, she's married to a Marine and he deploys all the time, so she gets it. That's a good point. And that it, for people to know that this is not like a gotcha kind of right. situation, which, you know, Leatherneck is not a gotcha kind of magazine at all, but not everyone knows that. And so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think for people to know that I'm not trying to, you know, catch them in some mistake or, you know, point out the, the negative. Um, I think that, that that's important. That's a good point. What do you think was the most challenging topic for you to cover? Hmm. All right. Well, I touched on it a little bit before, but really like PTSD, um, definitely a difficult topic to address. Um, I think too, I've done, I did a two-part article on traumatic brain injuries and the Department of Defense's efforts to, you know, identify and treat those, um, particularly those, um, you know, sustained by veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan due to IED blasts, et cetera, um, really became a huge issue um, during that period of time, um, as well as advancements in prosthetics. Uh, for service members who, you know, had limbs amputated and, and such. I, uh, those were difficult for me, I think mainly because they're very technical topics. They involved spending a lot of time with medical professionals, scientists, etc. And, um, you know, I have no experience in those <laughs> fields at all. Um, so being able to kind of understand and process what they were telling me and then translate that into language that our readers could understand was definitely very challenging, but kind of a great challenge. I was really happy with the outcome of those. Um, I think it's really remarkable to see, you know, what sorts of innovations are made as kind of an unintended consequence of war, um, you know, treatments for PTSD and, and TBIs, um, you know, advancements in prosthetic limbs, which is just amazing now. Um, and these things were all developed for service members and for veterans, um, but really they greatly impact the civilian world as well. It's kind of an opportunity for the military medical field to lead the way um, in, in these advancements. And now, you know, I mean, service members aren't the only ones who deal with loss of limbs, who deal with PTSD, um, but so many of these therapies, treatments, um, and other developments um, are really, really beneficial to all people, um, not just not just veterans. So really, really cool, important stuff that the Department of Defense has done during wartime. Um, and yeah, those were those were definitely challenging, though, because it's just something that I was had no familiarity with at all. Um, learned a lot and hopefully our readers did, too. 
in um, instances like that, do you find, um, because it seems like it's such a, it's a topic that we, not just in the uh, military culture, but as an American culture, does, we, we need to know about these things because we are talking about people who have sacrificed, sometimes the, the ultimate sacrifice in defense of the country. But I get the sense that you may have been the only person asking these questions or these might have been the only articles written on these topics. Do you find that it's hard to get into, like, are the people just so, I guess, is the market saturated enough to where it's easy to get the interview, it's more just finding the time? Or is it such a not, uh, it's such an undesirable topic that it's hard to find people to talk to this stuff about? Sure. Well, I had a great contact at Walter Reed, uh, Mark Oswell. He's now at uh, Defense Health Agency, so he's still in the field. Um, but he he kind of got all these balls rolling for me when I reached out to him. So it's all about finding the right person. And he's just a fantastic uh, media professional and, and knows his stuff. So he was able to set up all these interviews for me and, and things like that. He was wonderful to work with. Um, and a Marine veteran. He is a he's a Marine veteran as well. Um, great guy, but I think that you're right. A lot of these stories hadn't really been told. Um, another another individual he hooked me up with was Sergeant John Peck, who was a quadruple amputee and was the recipient of the first successful double arm transplant in history, or at least within the military medical field. Um, and I mean, what a what a resilient individual John Peck is really just, I mean, you know, what he endured and, you know, how he remained positive and um, a lot of setbacks, pre-transplant, post-transplant, you know, multiple times where his body just started rejecting these, these arms and it was, you know, nobody knew if he was going to be able to keep them or not. And he's just thriving today. I mean, even since I'm trying to remember what year this was, I think maybe around 2017 that I um, wrote this story about him and, and his book came out that he wrote. Um, and today I followed John on Instagram and he just seems to be doing, you know, the best he's ever been. And so just to see him to continue to thrive and to continue to become more independent, um, you know, he can drive a car, he can, I mean, just what he can do is just incredible. And that really is a testament to these, um, these medical professionals who have just been so dedicated to quality of life for amputees and how to give them their lives back. Um, you know, it's the least we can do as a nation um, for what they've endured for us. So um, just really cool to get to know some of these people um, and these civilians who are just very dedicated to giving them their lives back. And how intimidating was that to, to meet with and talk with people who had been so severely injured and or traumatized? Well, you know, it's funny because they're Marines, so they just, you know, I'm not going to say it doesn't phase them, but they're not, you know, one, one thing that impressed me about all of them is that they just don't wallow in self-pity. You know, it's, it's all about improving every day. What do I need to do to do the things that I love again, to go skiing or whatever it is? You know, it's just this, this unbelievable motivation that I 
think a lot of people wouldn't have. You know, it'd be really easy to just decide your life is over, you know, that, you know, I can't enjoy life anymore in this state, but just to see what determination can do. Um, it's, it's amazing. And, and just so inspirational, I think. That, that actually kind of reminds me of one of, I was with you for several of these interviews and I don't know if you remember this to me was one of the funniest sort of memories of our, our teamwork reporting when we <laughs> went to the uh, interview, the Marines who were doing physical therapy uh, for the prosthetic device story. Right. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? So um, is this a story of when you slipped on the ice and fell? No. <laughs> Tell that one later, though. Save that one. Put that one in the queue. That's that, the funniest thing I remember from that day, Nancy. Yeah, no, that was a different day. <laughs> day the British Embassy and had terrible tea to drink. Um, okay. that, that was another good one. Yeah, no, we were in the physical therapy room at Walter Reed, and you were just beginning your interviews, and one of the Marines told you a very off-color, salty story about what happened when he was injured. And Mark Oswell almost, uh, you know, passed out from the horror of this Marine speaking on recording to a reporter and a photographer. Right. Um, Thankfully, you know, we were, we were a friend, yeah, so we yeah, weren't yeah, going to call yeah. you. Yeah. I mean, you just never know what some of these guys are going to say. That's what yeah. keeps it exciting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but really just so, you know, to have a sense of humor and to be able to make light of your situation, you know, I've, it, it's amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. Um, what was it like? Um, so I know that you mentioned um, that some of your favorite stories have been those stories that weren't really covered. What about more of the high profile stuff? And how, like, how does that juxtapose with some of these others? where um, maybe your guest or your the interviewee has an agenda, has something they want to say, and now you're like, I will, I mean, are you just transcribing that at that point? Or are you like, well, I don't, this isn't a propaganda piece or, you know, how does that work? And then also dealing with their team, because probably in these cases, you're dealing with teams of people, not just the interviewee. Like, how right. is all that? Um, well, like you said about the propaganda, I do get a lot of, um, not from VIPs as much, but from others, um, some kind of like politically motivated statements and things like that. Um, and, you know, I just listen and nod and then we move on to the next topic. You like, know, why isn't and, your pen moving? You're like, I, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that. And, you know, I mean, nowadays that's you know, we have, there's a lot of conversations that, you know, kind of go that way and, you know, just respect others' opinions and then move on to the pertinent topics. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned about VIPs, um, for instance, if you're interviewing the Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, this is, you know, a very heavily guarded um, process, right? The, the, the Marine Corps is a brand and it's a very protected, guarded brand, and rightfully so, you know. Um, the Marine Corps is no stranger to scandal, as we all know. So, I mean, they're very, what? we're very cool well, about, we, um, 
<laughs> and that's not something we normally talk about in Leatherneck, but we know it's true. So, I mean, we're very careful about what words are attributed to, you know, the especially to the Marine Corps senior leaders, but really to, you know, all Marines. So, you know, when you're interviewing a VIP such as Sergeant Major Black, um, you know, you have to submit your questions in advance. And if there are any questions they don't want you asking, they'll tell you you can't ask that, you know, and, and you really have to stick to the script. So that is a challenge for me as someone who, you know, like I said, prefers kind of a conversational style interview. Um, when you just have to go down the list and ask the questions. And I mean, you can ask little follow-ups and things like that, um, but you really kind of have to stay on, stay on script and so do they, you know. Um, it's understandable. It can be a little difficult, a little harder sometimes to connect with somebody uh, when you're not really having that more conversational style. Um, but it makes sense who's not represented by, um, you know, a public affairs or media relations individual, uh, it's definitely easier to uh, to have a chat and not worry about, you know, asking them something they're not supposed to ask about. But as such, um, I it's definitely easier to interview, you know, a Marine veteran than it is to interview an active duty Marine because a veteran can say whatever they want. <laughs> the active duty Marine is, you know, has to follow certain standards and, and generally has somebody listening to, you know, make sure they're not going off the rails. So. Yeah. Where you know, you're like, Oh, that was a really interesting comment. All right. Next question. Cause we're not going to touch on that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'd love to follow yeah. up on that, but I'm not allowed to. It's hard. Um, but so interestingly, um, back when I interviewed Sergeant major Michael Barrett, when he was serving in the Marine Corps senior enlisted post, um, the gunnery sergeant who worked for him, um, Shannon Nuntavong, um, was his public affairs chief. And so he's the one who set up the interview, facilitated it, you know, vetoed my questions, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So um, I recently interacted with him again. He retired from the Marine Corps a few years ago, um, Gunny Nunn, and he's now the executive director of the American Legion. Um, spends a lot of time um, on Capitol Hill lobbying for veteran related legislation and such. Um, so it was really cool to see him go from the person handling this interview to now, you know, he's the one being interviewed and he's the one answering the questions and he has a lot of responsibility. Um, so really cool to see that evolution. Um, it's, it's always neat to interact with people, you know, later on down the line um, and see how, you know, see what they're up to. <laughs> Yeah, what is that like where, so maybe in one case where someone is more governed or more handled, then they get out of uniform, do you get many opportunities like that? And then you're like, all right, what did you really want to say or whatever? <laughs> I, have, I haven't had a, a lot of opportunities like that, um, except maybe informally. So, you know, I've run into, for example, we were just talking about Sergeant Major Barrett ran into Sergeant Major Barrett a few times um, after he retired. Um, and I wouldn't say he, you know, spilled all or anything like that, but I mean, just the difference in his um, kind of demeanor. And he also just, I mean, the weight of the world was no longer on, on Sergeant Major Barrett's shoulders. And he just was, you know, he seemed so energetic and he was all, he was always energetic, but just, very relaxed. I, I should. Say. <laughs> yeah. And that's a common thing. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about Rick. Are you more relaxed now that you're retired? Relaxed. <laughs> <is a> word. 
describe Marines mostly. So, <laughs> so yeah, not, not really a, haven't really had a chance to interview a whole lot of people a second time later on, but anytime I get to, you know, see people again, it's always a, always well, a special experience. I want to back up to something you said earlier about how, you know, often a little bit to your dismay, you don't, you're not really given full entree until some of your subjects learn that you are a Marine spouse. Well, do, do you recall ever a time where um, sort of the, the script was flipped a little bit in that I'm, I'm, I'm remembering a specific thing that you told me about when you interviewed the First Lady of the Marine Corps, Bonnie Amos. Right. And was your husband a captain at the time? That sounds about right. And so then you were invited to General Amos. <laughs> You pick up the story from there. You know, they then you were the you were sure, the, you were sure. The, so, so I received a you know special VIP invitation to the passage of command when General Amos passed um, you know the commandant role on to General Dunford, right? Dunford, that does that sound right? Okay. Anyway, so my my poor little captain husband um, was my plus one and <laughs> so we so we get there to uh the marine barracks and we have like a lieutenant colonel who's you know ushering us to our vip seats and <laughs> think, probably thinking why the heck is this captain here you know and uh he oh my gosh he was a ball of nerves the entire time i mean i think every four-star general in the marine corps was there um you know and at the time there were quite a few um and i mean just there were it, it was just crawling with you know the top brass they were everywhere and and this was you know his worst nightmare however after it was over he said that was really neat thank you for inviting me so oh. you know <laughs> well, how great once we got out of there, he was he could he could chill a little bit, but that was not his uh, not his idea of a good time. <laughs> <laughs> the the greatest and most stressful dinner ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but oh, Bonnie Amos, what a delightful person she is and was, um, and and so cool to you know go to the home of the commandants sit down in the parlor and and have a chat with bonnie one-on-one -on -one and and hear all about her experiences she just you know i think went above and beyond in the role of the commandant's wife and and you know and she just has did so much for for marine families and was just such a wonderful person so i really enjoyed that experience as well so can you think of any other sort of lighter, you, you talked a lot about some of the heavier stories, some of the more, you know, deep experiences. Can you, are you willing to share any of your lighter moments besides me slipping on the ice? That one. Oh, <laughs> by the way, I just sort of slid. It was totally fine. Let's see, lighter moments. You might have to help me out here, Nancy. Why do I gravitate toward the really heavy ones? I'm trying to think, well, it's lighter now, but after the John Warner interview, remember the uh, recording wouldn't upload to the cloud and you thought you had lost it. That was not a light moment, but okay. <laughs> so four hours later, we walk out of, uh, of John Warner's law firm and uh, 
I end the recording on my iPhone, um, which this is how I learned to always have a backup. Um, but the recording was so long that my my phone was having a real hard time saving it, I guess. And so there was definitely, you know, a good 30 minute panic attack that ensued. As we stood in the the twilight on the streets of Washington, D.C., <laughs> land, like, OK, how are we? remember everything that was said in the last four hours just based on our notes and i think it was about 10 degrees outside and it was uh, oh lord it was very cold and you know what i was thinking about with that interview you got that one in just in time because that was maybe what that january of yeah. 2020 so right. um you know just two months later we wouldn't have had that interview right right everything just shut down very quickly and um yep you definitely wouldn't have been able to have a face-to-face -face meeting with senator warner definitely not it was really a reminder to you know like i said not only get these stories told because you know particularly john warner you know member of the greatest generation um you know but all, all of these aging veterans, you know, they're not going to be around much longer. And, and these stories are so important. Um, but also just like if you have something like that on your to-do list, just do it. Schedule the interview. Make it happen because we don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. I mean, we can do interviews over Zoom or on the phone. Um, but in instances like that one specifically, that wouldn't have that wouldn't have worked. Um, we could have maybe tried, but it would not have been the same, not even close. I mean, the end product of that story would would not have been what it was. And there's definitely something to be said for that, you know, in-person, face-to-face interaction, um, particularly with people of a certain age, but really with, with anybody. I think there's, you know, just a connection that that happens in person that you don't really get otherwise. So are there any stories that you weren't able to write that you wish you could have? Yes. Yeah. So Nancy, you and I, um, you'll remember we attended a panel discussion at the National Archives um, concurrent with the opening of the Remembering Vietnam exhibit. I do remember that. And the panel was all about, they had some really interesting academic names on the panel, um, people who have studied kind of like American cultural phenomenons, I guess. Um, and it was about Vietnam veterans and the items that are left at the wall at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial um, and how the Park Service collects those items. I think it's like 500,000 items to date that they have collected. <laughs> Um, and archives them. They archive them and save them in like a storage facility. And like, what stories do these items tell? Um, you know, it's really like a cultural phenomenon. And I always wanted to go there with some Marines who served in Vietnam and kind of learn some of the stories behind the items left there. Um, so maybe I'll still write that one day. COVID happened and, and Marine reunions are just now starting to kind of pick back up. So, um, maybe that's something I can I can do in the future because I really, really was intrigued by this idea and uh, wanted to kind of, you know, showcase some of those things and then tell the story, too, about what the Park Service does with these these things and and how much they mean to people, you know, whether it's a, a can of beer or, you know, some memorabilia from their unit or something like that, that they leave there to honor their their friends who never came home. I would uh, love that article. 
So yeah, sadly didn't ever get to do that. Um, you know, mostly because of the pandemic was kind of the hold up there. And um, yeah, I think that would be an interesting one. Otherwise, I you know I'm really proud of the pieces that I that I accomplished, and I don't really feel like I'm departing with any you know unfinished business. I think this Beirut uh, story was really a great way to go out. Um, I hope our readers enjoy it. I think that um, you know to me that's what it's all about is is allowing Marines to tell their stories. And um, in this case, it was also getting to highlight, you know, these this director, filmmaker, and Gold Star sister of one of the Marines who was killed in Beirut, um, who are, you know, producing this film and giving these Marines a voice. Yeah, we're hoping we can get them to come on Scuttlebutt and do an episode about that. Vic, I'll, I'll talk to you about that later. You'll love it. <laughs> yeah, they're, awesome. They're, they're so passionate about about this project and it's just you know their their enthusiasm is contagious so it's it's and for for her elisa the gold star sister um you know it's all about honoring her brother's memory and and giving recognition to the marines who survived who came home and and deal with a lot of survivors guilt and a lot of frustration too about the way their entire ordeal there was handled um not just the bombing but their you know presence in the country in general what they were you know kind of the political aspect of it yeah those um, roes were ridiculous how limited they were um you know and how really they were there was no declared war, but for all intents and purposes, they were at war, um, but without the, you know, resources that they needed to defend themselves. Um, so really, you know, kind of a forgotten aspect of Marine Corps history. Maybe Marines, you know, are familiar with the bombing, but they don't really know the story of the Marine, you know, from 1982 to 1984, all the Marines who were there as part of this multinational peacekeeping mission and uh, how many were killed and injured, you know, on days other than the day of the bombing that that people know about. So let me ask you a couple of questions about yourself. Uh-huh. What, yeah, well, <laughs> first of all, what advice do you have for aspiring writers? All right. I think I have two pieces. One, I would say read, 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 and read some more. I I maintain that I am the writer that I am today um, because of how much time I spend reading the work of others. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, on topics related to things you write about, but I think anytime we read you know, our vocabulary improves, our diction improves, not only that, but just our perspective of the world gets bigger. Um, and I really attribute, you know, any writing success that I might have had to, you know, being an avid reader. So the more you read, the more you know, and the better you're going to be a writer yourself. Um, I would also say, too, writing is one of those things that it's really easy to procrastinate on. Um, and getting started is always the hardest part. So, you know, just sit down and write. Um, there's a there's a quote, I hate writing. I love having written. And that is so fitting and so true. And anyone who's a writer can kind of identify with that. The writing process is really difficult. It's not fun. It's agonizing. It's really easy to read something you just wrote and think like, oh, that's terrible. You know, what What? what am I thinking? You know, you kind of overanalyze yourself. Um, but that feeling of 
finally, when you have this finished piece, looking back at it and something that you're proud of. Um, and I would say really every, you know, some I love more than others, but I'm, I'm proud of every piece I've written for Leatherneck. Um, and even though sometimes the process was really difficult and challenging, um, every time I finish one and then I see it in print, it reminds me, you know, why I do what I do. And that gets me through the days where I'm really frustrated. Um, but yeah, that's what I would say. That's my advice. And what did you learn about yourself through the process of writing and telling other people's stories? That's a good question. Really deep. (laughs) (laughs) I would say really not as much learning about myself as really um, learning to see things through the perspectives of others. I think um, so often we tend to, you know, just see things through our own lens. And the more we, you know, listen to other people whose experiences have been different from ours, um, the more we can understand, you know, where other people are coming from. So I would say I think that I've I've gained a lot of perspective in this position um, and I think that ultimately makes me a better professional and a better human. Good answer. That is a good answer. Love the strong clothes on it. <laughs> and what are you going to miss most about Leatherneck besides me? <laughs> That's no it. Oh, I mean, so many things. I, I'm going to miss I our readers. Um, you know, it's anytime you write something that's published and it's out there, you're going to have critics. Um, you're going to have emails sent to you or sent to the editor calling you out for something you said or wrote that wasn't accurate or they didn't they didn't like the way you said it. I mean, thankfully, I didn't deal with a ton of that. Um not sure if I would have the metal to deal with some of the, you know, things that let's say a New York Times staff writer deals with, (laughs) you know, I mean, thankfully, but the positive emails and the positive feedback and the phone calls of people thanking me for telling a specific story or, you know, this story made them think about something in their own experience. Those far outweighed the criticism and you know, anytime anyone took the time to contact me with positive feedback, it really meant the world to me. Um, and thankfully, we have some fantastic Leatherneck readers who are just so supportive. And uh, and I will definitely miss interacting with them. And what is next for you if you are at liberty to talk about it? <laughs> Absolutely. So next week, I will be uh, stepping into a newly created position at the University of California, San Diego. I'll be associate director of content strategy. So that's under the university communications umbrella um, inside the communication strategy department. So they were really looking for someone who has a background in storytelling to help them find the stories across campus and within, um, you know, their faculty, alumni. Um, It's a huge research school. So just some really amazing contributions that uh, UCSD is making to really to the world. Um, And how do we find those stories and get them out there um, to, you know, multiple stakeholder groups and audiences. So it's a great opportunity for someone with my background. um, I really do consider myself a storyteller more than a journalist um, to be able to take those that background and kind of leverage it towards, um, you know, essentially public relations, communications type stuff. So I'm really excited to get to know the organization. I mean, there's there's an energy on a college campus that I think you can't really find anywhere else. And it's 
I love that. And I'm just so excited to, to dive in there, to get to know the community and its culture, to learn a new organization, um, one that is probably a way, way less complicated than learning the Marine Corps. <laughs> when you think of all the, you know, the acronyms, the unit structure, you know, all of it. I mean, really, the Marine Corps is a foreign language to people who aren't familiar with it. So when I first stepped into the role at Leatherneck, I knew absolutely nothing about the Marine Corps. Um, so it was, it's a steep learning curve, for sure, for anyone who is not familiar with the community. Um, and uh, so I kind of think this is going to be a little less of a learning curve, but still, for sure, it's a new culture to learn and to become a part of. So I'm sounds, excited. Sounds like an amazing opportunity. Yeah, it's so exciting. I'm really looking Super forward. Super jealous. <laughs> so I'll be here in sunny San Diego while you guys are getting snowed on. and. Boo. Yeah, nice. Every day. Don't be mean. <laughs> I'll be just, you know, steps from the Pacific on campus there. So it's um it's exciting. But I just interview's yeah. over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really truly am gonna miss I might not miss, you know, the Northern Virginia rat race, but I uh am absolutely going to miss being a member of the Leatherneck staff. We have a fantastic staff, um, and some of the members of our staff have been there for decades. So, I mean, it's, it says a lot about um, who we are as a publication. And uh, I'm also really excited to welcome um, former Marine Captain Kyle Watts into my role as staff writer. Uh, he's a very talented writer, wonderful person, brings that Marine Corps background. Um, he's going to do a great job, and I can't wait to see what kinds of stories he tells to our Leatherneck readers. He's also a, also a very skilled storyteller. So, yes, we, we're very lucky. Um, as sad as we are to be losing you, we are thrilled to be bringing Kyle into the fold full time. It's going to be great. Vic, have you got any uh, final questions for Sarah before she leaves us? No, this is awesome. Just, hey, uh, I don't know how long you've been in San Diego, but you got to go to PB. You got to go to Old Town and you got to. Okay. Too old for PB, Vic. Um, but... Whatever. <laughs> you know, I didn't say you had to go there at night. I said you just got to go down there. <laughs> Get your head out of the gutter. <laughs> um, no, Old Town is awesome. Come visit. We have lots of tacos. Yeah, Mark and the Padres are sort of good this year, so yeah. you're able to catch them right in time. It's a good time to be here. It's good to be back. This is our second uh, second go around here. Hopefully, we'll be staying a while. So. Yeah, I'm super jealous. <laughs> Road trip. Yeah, right. Well, Come on out. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to tell us your stories about telling other people's stories, which as you mentioned on Scuttlebutt is what we have really focused on, uh, telling telling really important stories and um, interesting stories and the untold stories. Absolutely. I love what you guys are doing on the podcast and keep it up. <laughs> yeah, you, somebody wrote a really great article about us. Um, you might want to check it out. I'll, I'll get you the, I'll send you a link. I yeah. wonder if that could be. <laughs> article yeah so all right well i guess that wraps it up for us today best of luck really um i we didn't work for very long together but i enjoyed it i really did and i, I wish you all the best i appreciate it same to you thanks nancy you're welcome thanks everybody
introduction of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. You have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Mother Neck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scott are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.